Oh my, what a treat. Welcome, welcome everyone to uh, Like Trees Walking. I am Michael J. Nelson. I'm David Berge. This is, as you know, if you clicked on this, well maybe you don't know, this is the podcast where we talk about the big issues, life, death, our place in the universe, who we are as human beings, is there a God? We think there is. Pretty sure. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, we, we talk about these big issues from a Christian perspective, but we welcome all comers, those who are opposed to God, those who have not laid down their arms in the war against the creator of the universe. We welcome you Yes, and that's well. very, very fitting for the theme of this uh, episode, this two-parter. Yeah, this is very <sighs> special. I, David, David Paul Berge, I am so happy, I confess right now. We are, uh, we've already done the work. Well, you and, and you did and lots your of guests. work. You were, you were engineering the entire I, I thing. I engineered, but that's, you know, that's sitting there staring at a keyboard and doing what you can. But the point is, I already know that these episodes are golden. It's, I mean, isn't gold, that a great Jerry, place? Gold. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, I do these live shows where we, we go on stage and you sweat and you're nervous and it's horrible, but everything goes down okay. And then there's a rerun of our live shows and you're just sitting at home going, oh, I'm up on stage right now. <laughs> and that, that's the feeling that I have right now is that you... David Paul Berge are up on stage already doing your performance yeah, and it went it went <laughs> it was great I did know that my performance was great given the fact that I basically had nothing to do other than ask these prompt, prompting questions and I let the good guest go run run wild which I, I, I you know I'm I obviously asked him on because I'm a big fan of his so um so I could just I could just sit and listen to him talk for yeah, long, long yeah, periods of time. It's great. It's great. It's like being in a in a very, very good and interesting classroom. Yes. So, so yeah. students, which, you know, pay attention. <laughs> which uh, I did. Which I had the privilege of doing for uh, for back in my seminary days. So, um, yeah. So it was really, really. I mean, a treat to have him on. We had. Uh, we'll not bury the lead. It's probably in the name of the episode anyway. So, uh, but no, probably not. I'm going to title it in a creative way. So you. Oh, won't okay, know that, good. All know? right. Well, let's get to it because we have a lot of it, and I'll just let you introduce it. We have a special guest. These are two special episodes. We're splitting an interview into two. Uh, Dave, introduce him and uh, set the stage, and then we'll just let it run. And I should note, there's um, we did an interview with, it's just an audio note, we did an interview, he was speaking in a, um, I think his laptop computer. Yep. It turned out well, but... Just so you know, there's a little bit of a different sound thing, but he called it. But it's no, it will not yeah, be a barrier your, to it. It was fine. Uh, enjoyment will be fine. So yes, this is our a repeat guest, our only guest, unless you count the one time we uh, had an audio book reading from G.K. Chesterton, if that counts, I don't know. But uh, so this is uh, Professor Gordon Graham. He is the soon-to-be emeritus professor of, of, of the uh, arts and philosophy at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, the Henry Luce III professor. So um, uh, a very, very wonderful and learned professor of mine um, who wrote this wonderful book called Evil and Christian Ethics, and we'll put it in the show notes by uh, Gordon Graham, and it came out in, in 2001. Um, but it's it's really his uh, his take on what makes uh, Christian moral action uh, meaningful, and he situates it actually in this the 
what I would say is the Christian cosmic narrative of the struggle between the spiritual forces of good and evil. And so this is coming from, you know, a very learned uh, philosopher, professor. So someone going like, that's all, you know, spiritual stuff is just junk. Or even Christians, who we often get sort of embarrassed by this kind of um, pre-modern language, uh, Dr. Graham has none of that squeamishness. He he takes it on full bore, um, and it's really fun to listen to him go, and and he addresses this, uh, this moral framework to all sorts of of uh, contemporary um, contemporary moral phenomenon and, and questions. So it, it's just very, very, very interesting and enlightening to hear him um, expound uh, expound upon this and bring it to bear on these uh, on, on, on the contemporary situation. So I commend it to you. And if you like it and love it, please go to iTunes, rate us, and review us. Wow, the plea was right in the. Uh, we're the not going to break this up. Like no, we're not going to break you know, this up. Um, I should just say, as a preface, that I was smiling. I'm sitting, listening, and doing my producing. I got the cans on. I'm working the dials. I'm pressing the buttons. I'm sliding around in my producer chair. I'm giving the thumbs up. But I was smiling during the part where he makes, and I won't spoil this. I'll, we'll come back f- for a little outro after this uh, part of the interview. Is I was smiling when he was talking about the difference between evil and crazy, and I'm, I'm yeah. going to let him speak it, and then I'm going to, uh, after this is over, I'll just give my little, because this is a, a point I've always made with humanists, secularists, materialists, like what, crazy, evil, I've, I've got a little brief argument. So anyway, he goes into it, obviously, much more deeply and thoroughly, but it's very exciting stuff. So uh, anything else before we just wade into the interview? No, let's just go. All right, here he is. This is uh, Dr. Gordon Graham and David Paul Berge. (laughs) All right, it is great to have on the line uh, our only guest and uh, repeat guest, uh, Dr. Gordon Graham, the very soon-to-be emeritus professor, Henry Luce, the third professor of, of... um, is it uh, aesthetics and what is, what's your official title? Dr. Philosophy Graham? and the Arts. Philosophy and the Arts at the August Institution, which I attended Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, but uh, but you're retiring this year, which is a, a a loss to the seminary. So I'm just glad I got to be there when you were there, Dr. Graham. And so uh, Thank you. yeah, so uh, Princeton will miss you, but uh, but but you put in a good shift. So. Uh, so, so thank you for doing that. And, uh, yes, so we are, uh, last time we talked was, I believe before the election, before the U S election. That's right. And you made the case against the democratic state, um, Mm -hmm. which many probably say has gotten even stronger, (laughs) um, (laughs) the case against democracy, which got stronger, uh, since then. But, uh, that was one of our favorite episodes. Lots of great feedback from that. Um, our little podcast has been chugging along, and so uh, recently at at the church where I serve, this is one of the perennial questions that we deal with on this podcast, which is about the big questions of faith, life, morality, philosophy, what it means to be a human being here on planet Earth from a Christian perspective, and so uh, it, we want to tackle those big things. And at, at our church recently, we were reading we were reading C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, um, that great, uh, you know, allegory, and yes. it it uh, it generated a lot of conversations about, um, you know, the the spiritual realm, particularly the demonic and diabolical, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so, you know, people have a it, given the uh, quote modern condition or modern mind. You know, people have a hard time with that, and it made me think of uh, this book that you wrote in uh, what year was it published? 2001 in 2001 um so uh, pre 911 
even. That's right. That's right. Man, so that would have been even richer fodder for uh, for the book itself had, had it been post 9-11. But talking about uh, its evil and Christian ethics. And so this was a Cambridge University Press book that you put out talking about. Uh, we'll let you trace the argument, but the um, the spiritual uh, and the the demonic and diabolical feature quite prominently in your argument. And so I thought it would be good, not just it would be good for people from our church to learn about this, but also um, for our broader listening audience for Light Trees Walking to uh, hear what you have to say about that, because uh, I think that it's it's surprising given... Um, Given the state of, I think, modern theology and how it tends to deal with these things, uh, but but yours is a, a kind of a recovery of certain pre-modern notions of of the influence of these spiritual agents on and how they work within the framework of Christian ethics or Christian moral uh, theology. So, with all that preface, by way, uh, Doctor Graham, what 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 say you about evil and Christian ethics? Let me just say, uh, it was uh, pre-9-11, but it was written around the time of Columbine, uh, the killings at uh, the school there. And, of course, those episodes, and including Columbine, have come back to attention because of recent, uh, not just school shootings, but elsewhere. And I took, as a starting point, so to speak, when people encounter those sorts of things, they generally have two responses. On The first response uh, is to call the perpetrators evil. Uh, and then the second response is to call them sick. Sometimes it goes the other way around. So it looks as though the modern world uh, wants to think about um, these horrendous evils uh, where human beings do truly ghastly things to each other. And, and particularly against children or against innocent people. They want to uh, try and apprehend how th- we should understand that. And uh, I, I invite anybody, when these things happen, to just look at, at what's said from politicians down. And there are three elements, I think, particularly in America, that you'll find. One, uh, this is evil. Two, the man, usually, is sick. Three, prayers are called for. And in a way, my book was an attempt to sort out these different ideas uh, because it is a striking fact that if you look at these cases closely, you will very rarely find evidence of any identifiable mental sickness or illness. Even if you did, because usually, let me just say, uh, it's very common to see that these um, People have planned what they want to do very carefully. Uh, They have shown a great deal of rational agency in getting everything together. I mean, you might think uh, the the shooter at Las Vegas, for example, was kind of a little bit crazy by having all those guns. How many guns do you need to slaughter people? But nonetheless, it was clearly very carefully arranged and planned and organized So that when you say these people are mentally ill or sick or mad, uh, what uh, accommodation do you make for the fact that actually they appear to be really rational agents? And I think we we will find that again and again. When you look at people who are actually um, mentally ill 
or uh, even though we don't use the term very much nowadays, mad, you will find that a certain kind of derangement, an inability uh, to organize their own lives, a proneness to delusions, these are characteristic. These get in the way of their practical agency. Whereas when you consider uh, the shooters and the killers and, if you want, the 9-11 people, suicide bombers and so on, all these people are acting very cleverly and rationally. Just take one this week. Suicide bomber in Afghanistan destroys uh, large numbers of people, including a lot of children. He had cleverly got into the compound uh, by persuasively disguising himself as a press reporter. That is not a mad action. So I want to revert to the idea of evil actions. But then the question is, what account can you give of evil if you think uh, that the world is, broadly speaking, as uh, materialists and relativists think it is? So if you just think that good and bad and right and wrong uh, are a function of human preferences and human plans and human desires, how do you uh, make uh, pick out these dramatic cases as being in some sense especially wrong, some sense as uh, striking against something deep and important. And I think that the only way you can do that is to invoke something of a cosmic nature, that there is something in reality, uh, in reality itself, uh, that embodies uh, and directs us to good and evil. Now, if you think the fundamental building blocks of of uh, reality are physical and uh, cosmological and geological and biological processes, then you can only accommodate things as malfunctionings. You can't really accommodate them as evil. So that's my point about the killers. These killers are not malfunctioning human beings. On the contrary, they are functioning very well indeed to perform certain kinds of action. So what are we to make of this? And what I wanted to say in that book is that uh, we're inclined to suppose that somehow these are people who have embraced a completely different sets of values. And a slogan that captures that is that these are people who have said, evil, be thou my good. Uh, But that slogan, evil, be thou my good, is really incoherent and contradictory. How could evil be good just because I want to make it good? Besides which, uh, it's not as though uh, these people, and often, of course, they kill themselves or they're shot by police, so our understanding of their mentality is somewhat limited. Uh, But very often, these people do not, actually, Uh, represent themselves or even speak in ways that suggest they have a completely different set of values as though they'd flown in from outer space. No, they like and want and pursue the same things as most of us do. So what then has gone wrong? And I think that one of the uh, things that has gone wrong, in fact, I would say this is uh, at the heart of these cases, Uh, that these are people who know good from evil, but they hate the good. Uh, 
And if you look at some of these cases, some of which I discuss in the book, then you will see that, and this is a very common pattern, these are often loners, people who have a deep and profound resentment against the world in which they have found themselves, who believe uh, that the world has not done them uh, justice. Uh, their resentment is often inflamed when they see and actually apprehend innocence and success. Uh, so the innocence of children is not something that they deem evil. They deem that to be good and they hate it. Uh, in particular, when you get these cases that attack women, often you find it's men uh, who feel they have been cheated or despised uh, in the whole context of relations with women. It's not that they think these women are evil. On the contrary, they see these women's attractiveness, their goodness, their happiness in life, and they hate it. Now, how do people... Uh, act on the basis of this hatred? How does it come about that this they see the world in this way? And I want to return here uh, to pre-modern ideas. And may I just say, I'm not the sole person to try to think in this way about these kinds of things. I mention in the book the late uh, theologian uh, Walter Wink, and Walter Wink, although most people think uh, his uh, ideas are a little strange, but Walter Wink, I think, in a set of three books uh, about the powers, he wanted precisely to get some New Testament ideas of uh, demon agency, demon possession, uh, and, as it were, refurbish them for the... Uh, modern world in a way that we can understand things that happen as spiritual agencies, spiritual agencies at work in our world. And the sort of instance that um, Walter Wink was specially concerned with uh, was not so much the personal case, the, the loner, the killer that I've just been describing, as mass phenomena. How can it be uh, that good, decent people in Nazi Germany uh, were uh, recruited into and actually ran with great efficiency the horrors uh, of the Holocaust and the concentration camps. How can it be that ordinary people did that? And that's what Wink is interested in, what I was interested in, in uh, the notion of a spirit of evil uh, that spreads and seduces. And that's where the notion of Satan returns. Now, the other uh, framework of my book was to uh, accommodate uh, the constant uh, centuries-old contention uh, that if the world in which we find ourselves is the creation of a good and loving God, then the phenomenon of evil is inexplicable. And that the phenomenon of evil uh, is, shows uh, that there can be no such good God at the heart of reality. And I wanted, I uh, was trying to reverse that argument uh, and to say something like this. Again, this is not novel to me, but say something like this. Suppose that is true. Suppose uh, that there is uh, no God. And uh, suppose that we conclude that that is the case because of the evil that we witness. 
Of course, the fact that there is no God does not make that evil go away. It still is the case from whenever it arises that the Nazi Holocaust or the killings of children in shootings or all the other, indeed, natural evils that go on are still there. So now, if there is no God, what is our responsibility? And it seems to follow that we should be working to destroy the world. And we should welcome, in fact, uh, the idea that climatic change will bring about its destruction, if it is as evil uh, as the argument suggests. If not, if that is not the case, uh, then we have to ask the question, what is it uh, that gives us hope? So we confront this world in which, whether we're atheists or we're theists, there's all this evil. And the question is, what will give us hope. And that's where I want to reintroduce uh, essentially the Christian message and to say that the, at the heart of the Christian gospel is the idea that Christ on the cross defeated evil. Uh, it may seem very puzzling to us, as indeed it should, because it's a mystery, that the way to defeat evil is to embrace it in the horrors of the cross. And Christ, uh, the risen Christ does not return uh, with a flaming sword destroying all about him. The resurrection appearances of Jesus uh, transform the world, but not uh, by setting about it uh, with a great vengeance. Uh, so uh, the great enemies of Christ who put him where they were, the, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, uh, Herod, these people remained. Uh, you might say, where are they now? And that's a very important observation. No, Christ has persisted. But Christ the King uh, defeats evil not by destroying it, by, but by uh, taking it into himself. So if we believe uh, that um, evil has been defeated, of course, it does not follow uh, that there is not some aftermath or residue. And in fact, uh, the book of Revelation precisely says that. It says that when Satan was cast out of heaven, uh, then, then the book says, uh, but woe unto the earth, because Satan has come down to you, uh, full of wrath, because he knows his time is short. And so with a picture depicted there is of a world in which good and evil are indeed engaged in struggle, but uh, where we can say with confidence, if we believe the gospel story, that evil has been ultimately defeated. Nonetheless, Satan has come down to the earth for a time. Now, uh, this idea I wanted finally in, in the book to articulate this idea of uh, satanic seduction, that actually it's not that we or others or people who go the wrong path uh, accept a different set of values. It's that they are seduced into seeing things in a certain way. And I wanted to uh, exploit the analogy of seduction there. Because if you think of the case of, well, we normally think of it, of a man who seduces a woman. Seduction is different from rape. Uh, but it's also different from completely uh, free exchange and interchange of two people in sexual partnership. The key to seduction is uh, that the woman comes to believe that the man is other than he is. Uh, 
And so uh, the seducer successfully conveys a convincing picture. And that picture uh, is remarkably uh, individualistic in a way. It's a very characteristic story of seduction that the woman who is seduced thinks that she alone knows and understands the man. And the rest of us can see that this man is a con man, that he's taken for a ride, that he is no good for her. But she sees it differently. Not that it is different. She sees it differently. And that's what I want to say about actions like Columbine and the Nazis and racism and so on. People are seduced into seeing it differently even though it isn't different. So that was the general strategy, and uh, to, to try and link together a under, Christian understanding of evil, which is generated around the idea of how do we live hopeful lives in a world that does indeed contain uh, these very evil things. So um, a wonderful sketch of kind of the contours of the argument that you make. And so one Thing that popped into mind or a question I think that people will have is so when you're talking about um, people and, and even yeah, whole societies being seduced into these, uh, you know, uh, horrific evils, who who is doing the seducing of them? Who or what is, is seducing them? Well, I'm perfectly uh, happy to use the term Satan, uh, but I think that um, if you don't like the term Satan, uh, the next best thing is the spirit of evil. That is what Satan is, after all, uh, the spirit of evil. But And that's why I'm I, I, with Walter Wink, I'm quite happy to talk about spiritual powers. So, uh, and, and of course, those spiritual powers speak to us uh, by addressing the... Uh, those elements of humanity that we Christians, anyway, think are in need of redemption, the vanity, the self-seeking, the self-importance, uh, broadly speaking, a, a kind of deep egoism that sees the world uh, centered around us. Now, if I may trespass for a moment into uh, political matters, I think that is uh, a key element here in this notion of uh, America first, make America great again. What matters on that appeal uh, is that we Americans, this country, is the center of the world. Uh, that, of course, can take two uh, different rifts, as it were. Uh, one is an, a, a deep nationalistic uh, inward-lookingness, but it clearly and unmistakably appeals. That's It's successful. Uh, but it also can take on a moral gloss, which sometimes has in times past, where America is the uh, shining city upon the hill. Uh, and here again is a deep temptation, and I believe it was a temptation uh, that uh, the American state uh, succumbed to in the light of um, 9-11. We can be the instrument of our own salvation if we get all our wealth, our technology, our determination, uh, and our cooperative effort together. We can destroy evil. It's a remarkably uh, anti-Christian view. Uh, you could only think that if you thought 
and I, people simply weren't thinking about this, I guess, uh, if you thought, well, Christ didn't defeat evil, so it's up to us now. Uh, and of course, it's doubly anti-Christian because uh, the way in which God in Christ defeats evil is on the cross, not on the battlefield. So I see the, the temptation. I mean, you, you must yourself feel this temptation to believe that somewhere like America with its wealth and its technology and so on could be the center of the world, could be the savior of the world. And that, I, I, I think, is there's the tempting spirit. But it's a, the spirit, if you like, of make America great again is something into which individuals get caught up. It's not, as it were, it's uh, the composite sentiments. No, the important point to see is that people get caught up in that vision, just as they did uh, in places like Nazi Germany and so on. It's not that the vision, the spirit, is just a kind of generalization of what everybody's thinking. No, it's what draws people in, captures them. So that's, um, however you want to put it, it's that order of agency. It's not that this is, this is something we all agree about and so we project it. No, this is something we get caught up in. So that spiritual agency itself has a, a it's an explanatory Correct. quality. It's a powerful draw. And my point really is this. How, if you try and do it the other way around, how do you explain the phenomenon of people getting drawn into these things? Uh, you, I don't think you can. It, it means it's, it's not like, by an amazing chance, people in Germany all found in themselves the same their, their own sentiments. No, they were. They, Hitler worked it up. The Nazis worked it up. People drew them into this vision of the thousand-year Reich and uh, the triumph of the will. Yeah, I, when I think even of the, uh, the the recent story of the that guy in Toronto who did the, yeah. you know, he mowed all those people down with his car mm -hmm. and uh, brought this new terminology, I think, to a lot of people's attention, the, the incel, uh, involuntary mm -hmm. celibate community, which is mm -hmm. kind of this woman-hating um, yeah. ideology, which uh, traces back to this Elliot yeah. Rogers character, who I, re I remember that quite well, because I served a church that was very close to Santa Barbara, and uh, I had just moved away, um, and so he was in Isla Vista, this college community, and, you know, mm -hmm. this, that, that this, there's this spiritual draw for all, there's this spiritual fellowship between these men who, you know, have this incredible misogyny because they're being yeah, denied yeah, what yeah. is there by right and where did this where did this idea come from I mean, of course there's always been sexist attitudes or anti-women attitudes but what is it about that's drawing this community of people together who have this deep-seated resentment and and hatred towards because of their frustration mm -hmm. it, there is a there seems to be a spirit um, that is that is seducing and drawing um, drawing these folks together and causing some to act out in these murderously uh, violent ways. Yes, I, I mean, see, what I, one thing I, I want to say about that sort of case generally is, um, I think we, in a relativistic spirit, people are inclined to think that these people people like that uh, find themselves with uh, with a, a different set of values. 
which they share. But that's not quite right. As you correctly say, they are motivated by hate. Now, if you take the uh, the doctrine uh, from the letter of John that God is love, that actually love animates reality, then you can see the opposite of that which animates reality is hatred. So you can say Satan hates. So just as God is the spirit of love, so Satan is the spirit of hatred. And uh, the important point to see is that hatred is not a different set of values. No, it's the same values. It's just it hates them. So the men you're talking about see these women as young and attractive and uh, uh, probably sexually active and innocent and so on and so forth, and they hate it. That's the key. So, um, and when it, uh, so what is the, you know, the humanistic response to, you know, what's, what's happening uh, with this or, or the explanatory character or makes, you're very critical of, um, the shortcomings uh, of yeah. such a perspective, and so in, in your mind, I think, yeah, you say hopeful mm-hmm. uh, in light of the in light of humanism, uh, hopeful moral endeavor is groundless. Uh, in yes. fact, you say so. What? Why? What? 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 What does the humanist have to say um, about this great evil, and how, why, in your view, does that fall short of what what we need? Well, you can say one of t- t- two things. Uh, you can either say uh, these things are so bad uh, that we cannot um, hope to amend them. So there will always be holocausts, there will always be shootings. Uh, In that case, if that is the case, and the humanist says they really truly are evil, then as I said before, uh, the only solution is to work for the destruction of the world. Uh, if it's really that bad a place, then the only morally responsible thing to do is to seek to destroy it. And that has very paradoxical, at least odd, conclusions. You you will welcome nuclear weapons and uh, try to speed up the uh, environmental changes that might wreck the place. So if you don't want to go that route, then where can you go? Well, uh, the only other possibility seems to be we can put them right. Put what right? Well, take these killers and now, you know... It, one day, someday, along the line, uh, there's going to be medical treatment or something of this kind or security systems and so on. Uh, well, uh, there's a number of problems about this. Uh, if if really it's true, you couldn't make a bigger effort uh, than was made uh, with the war in Iraq. And look where that is now. You know, untold destruction. You couldn't make a, a better effort uh, than has been made uh, with, uh, although it's not terrific, but has been made with dealing with mental illness. But my earlier point was, it doesn't look as though this is mental illness. So now, you can, of course, you can take the route that says, uh, well, you know, I, I think this empirically is very plausible, but you can say, well, it's all to do with uh, bad upbringing or... Um, poor housing or low income or something of this kind. Well, are you going to put all of that right? Is that the idea? Uh, how far are you going to get along those? So so the, the humanist mentality that says there are no agencies other than ours, humanity must make the world a better place because nothing else can, uh, 
has to face some very difficult facts. It has to say it not doesn't appear to be happening. Now, may I just say here that not everybody will agree. So, um, famously, I mean, long after my book was uh, written, and I, I'm sure he knows nothing about my book, but Stephen Pinker, the Harvard uh, psychologist, evolutionary psychologist, he has written a couple of books that uh, that uh, are really a, a certain kind of, um, I think, easy optimism, you know, but... Uh, Day by day, in every way, we're getting better and better is his theme. And he, and he charts up certain statistics about deaths and uh, killings and violence and so on. So he, he uh, is uh, can make, a, I think it's rather a naive case myself, but he can make a case for saying, well, you know, since the Enlightenment, broadly speaking, with science and technology and so on, uh, we have actually improved the world a great deal. And uh, I'm just going to say, I think that is uh, kind of naive, but uh, it's it rests heavily uh, upon a certain way of quantifying uh, good and evil, good and bad. Uh, but that's so. I just wanted to. The only reason I observe Pinker is he's a very uh, successful and popular uh, writer. Uh, his most recent book about the Enlightenment is is. Uh, Probably a New York Times bestseller or whatever, but uh, but so there there is a way you could say if you're a thoroughgoing humanist, uh, you could say uh, with Pinker. Well, I, you know, I've looked at the numbers and it's all adding up and everything. Uh, I think in the end that can't be made out, but I just don't want to uh, ignore the fact that there are humanists humanists there who 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 are feel a sufficient confidence to make that kind of argument. Um, so given, um, you know, given the reality of evil and, and it's, you're, you're placing it with the context of, of the Christian narrative, I would say even sort of yes. a Christian cosmology Correct. of, uh, you know, this world being a theater of battle between the, the God and the cosmic mm -hmm. forces that are opposed to him and how they work through um, material, you know, material reality and material agents. What what would you say is the Christian responsibility or response to the reality uh, of, of evil? Um, so if it's not, you know, uh, well, we're, you know, we're going to uh, take, you know, the weapons of this world and we're going to destroy, you know, evil uh, in its axis forms or whatever. Um, what mm -hmm. is, what is it, what is a, not maybe the, but a uh, Christian response to evil in the face of it being, its source being rooted in these malevolent, you know, cosmic forces, at least some of the well, time. Yes. Well, I think the, um, the, the, first of all, a key point is this. Uh, the belief that in the crucifixion evil has been destroyed. It has not been eliminated completely. So the pre everybody thinks, everybody's always thought that the present, every Christian, I mean, that the present dispensation is not the final dispensation. Uh, it may be, it is the case, that the present dispensation uh, turns out to be far longer than the early Christians thought it would be. Uh, certainly than St. Paul thought it would be. Uh, and, but then that, the reason that might be just that we have to uh, get into our heads uh, that the temporal perspective is God's, not ours, 
And as the psalm says, a thousand ages in thy sight are but an evening gone. Uh, so, uh, so we, if God's temporal uh, expectation or temporal apprehension is not ours, then the present dispensation by human standards might be uh, very long and certainly is longer than uh, the early church thought. So it's uh, the first challenge then is to hold fast to the faith in Christ's uh, conquering of evil, to hold fast to that. Uh, in the present dispensation. And what holding fast to that means, I think, is uh, two things. First, uh, that uh, you really look to the future in terms of promise, not in terms of prediction. So the reason that you hope that the future will work out in ways that are good for human beings and ultimately ways of justice and truth and beauty and so on, is the promise of God that it shall be so. Not our prediction that if we do this, that and the other, we can bring that about. Uh, so our attitude to the future has to be uh, faith in a promise and not faith in a prediction. And that's a pretty good thing when you think about it because human beings are so bad at prediction. Uh, but secondly, I, th I, I want to say holding fast to the uh, belief uh, that Christ has defeated evil is being willing uh, to stand in the light, as I like to put it. I say stand in the light because um, at Easter time, um, and in, uh, for churches that have an Easter vigil and so on, the opening words, the repeated refrain, uh, that opens the whole, the, the major Easter uh, sequence of worship is the light of Christ, to which the response is, thanks be to God. And then it's repeated, the light of Christ, the light of Christ. And this echoes John's gospel, uh, which tells us that the light has come into the world, but men hated it uh, because their deeds were evil. So the idea is that the light that shines in the darkness, John says, it cannot be overcome. Because the light that shines exposes, uh, shows up certain sorts of things. And those uh, whose deeds are evil, including all of us to some extent, but who have secrets and shames and fears, the light shines and so shows those to be as they are. Now, we know that in all sorts of levels of human activity, people try to hide things, things that are ashamed of, uh, things that they have done wrong. Uh, so to be willing to stand in the light, and of course the practice of uh, confession is important here, but to be willing to stand in the light of Christ is to be willing, A, uh, to, to uh, have your own weaknesses and failings exposed, and secondly, uh, to say in sort of Lutheran terms, here I stand, whatever the evil the world may hurl and fling. That you might say, I stand in the light on the side of the angels. I can't do anything else. And that's no guarantee of material success. It does not uh, guarantee that you will not be destroyed. But then the Christian... Uh, church 
has always held from day one, well not day one, but from the Acts of the Apostles, uh, that one of the most powerful forms of witness to the truth of the gospel is martyrdom. In fact, as I'm sure you know, the word martyr comes from the Greek for witness. Uh, now we've tended to use it as people who witnessed to the point of their own death. Uh, that's not uh, how it should be thought of. It should be thought of as people who, in whatever circumstances, are witnesses to the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, willing to witness to it. And sometimes that will be very demanding. That will be a huge cost attached to that. Uh, sometimes it's much less, but I think you'll find your average uh, churchgoer isn't too willing to witness very much in even much more modest circumstances. Uh, that is, <laughs> that, sadly, that's very true. Probably a lot of uh, pastors, too. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> that's a wonderful answer. I, I, I do have a couple. Okay, we'll uh, break it there. Uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, the good news is the, you know, the rest of it is coming up. You'll have to wait and see. The provocative musings of a very, very intelligent man. I, I, I love it. I yeah, love so it. Mike, and it what, doesn't hurt that, you know, that, that Brit... Is he British? What, we determined well, this we, before. He's from... Uh, is he from Scotland or Northern... Oh, God. I, we, this we, is we, like... We, we had this exact <laughs> God, discussion. Have, I can't remember at all. He's but, not Irish. He's not Irish. No. Anyway. Scottish, I think. Anyway, smart accent. <laughs> That doesn't hurt, right? <laughs> no, Come it on, doesn't. Let's be honest. And when it comes to accents, that's like tops. I would say, and I, to honor our Australian audience, like when a British person says something, it's like 20% smarter. When an Australian person says something, it's 20% dumber. <laughs> Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm just, that's my bias. It's wrong. I know what, it's well, wrong. Well, let me pull out one. What? There's one aspect where they excel, and you have to admit this. Which is what? Um, knife examining, which... <laughs> If you were to produce a knife and you were to present it to everyone else and claimed it was a knife, who would you want more than an Australian to I would judge want, that knife? I would want Crocodile Dundee That's not a knife. That's a knife. knife. There you go. See, so uh, they've got it all over them in that. But uh, great stuff. And anything else to add before we just no, move Mike, on what, to the... What did he say that you just want to underscore his Oh, crazy... thank you for yes. bringing that up. Yeah. So this is always my argument about uh, crazy versus evil. Like, oh, that guy was sick when he does something incredibly evil uh, never mind the scope but let's take the worst thing oklahoma city bombing or something um crazy people as i understand it go out and do things like wear uh you know a vikings t-shirt with no pants and go and paint your barn yellow in the middle of the night like wow that guy's crazy that's insane yeah yes <laughs> but as he says like these people are plotting planning doing these things this the, the definition of sanity these are highly competent people in doing evil i don't understand that thing to deflect immediately when someone does something very, very sharply evil to not just go, no, you have to, it's, it's hard to think about, but you got to wade in and say, that was evil. That guy is evil. And you don't get a pass by just saying... He's crazy. Yeah. By def but that's the thing is definitionally because of our, you know, we've basically bracketed off um, anything beyond the material, even though most of us aren't philosophic materialists. Like, yeah, no, but, you live in both worlds, exactly. even if you say you are a materialist. But like our discourse has been circumscribed in such a way that it's just a mal you know, the, from a kind of humanistic perspective, it's, well, that's a malfunctioning, that's a product of a malfunctioning mind, you know, not a someone whose mind is functioning really, really well, but has been seduced in some way by 
hating what is good and desiring what is, you know, desiring what is bad, choosing, you know, consciously choosing it. And so for us, it it just has to be a, you know, everything gets pathologized um, because that sickness. That's the only framework. framework That's all we've got. Yeah. 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 That's all we've got. Yeah. But it just doesn't make any sense when you put it that way, because we all know crazy people. There are people who, you know, push a shopping cart down the street with doll heads in it and talk about Karl Marx or whatever. Like, well, that guy's kind of, he's a little nutty. Don't, don't talk about my dad that way. <laughs> right? hey, I love him. No, my dad is my <laughs> I give him all my used doll heads. <laughs> no, that is not true. Love you, Dad. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, we will be back uh, with a, a new and provocative uh, Like part Trees Walking. Two. Part two. Part two. Part two, and uh, and he'll wrap up, and it is great stuff. So, and and then after that, we'll be back with fresh topics. So, uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Turns away again to laugh behind a bitten fist.